there's an organization development expert named Peter Block who tells a story about power. He was working as a consultant with a supermarket chain. And when he would go into the local stores, the managers would tell him that they couldn't change anything because their hands were tied by the regional managers. So Peter Block went to go meet with the regional managers. And they said, well, we can't really do anything because headquarters won't let us. So he went to headquarters and the people there pushed him upstairs and upstairs and upstairs until finally he was in the office of the company president. And he thought to himself, well, here's somebody who can get something done around here. Until when he met with the president, to his amazement, the president did nothing but complain about how he couldn't get anything done around here. He didn't know how to get the region managers to do what he asked them to do. He felt stuck and blocked at every turn. And he was really frustrated about the watery ketchup in the company cafeteria. It was their store brand ketchup and it was too watery. And he had told them over and over that they had to reformulate this ketchup. And even in his own cafeteria, they couldn't get that done. And every day, Mr. Hilliard, the company president had to go and eat his lunch with that watery ketchup, a prisoner of his own corporation. And it's a story about power and about how power is frustrated and about how even those who are theoretically at the top can often feel stuck. It's a story about how people frustrate and block one another. It's a story I think of when I think of King Herod. Except that, of course, the story of Herod and John the Baptist is so much darker. You know, the cost of Mr. Hilliard's dysfunctional system is some watery ketchup and some sinking revenues. But the cost of Herod's dysfunctional system is a prophet's life. And of course, John the Baptist wasn't the only person to die or suffer under Herod's regime. And it's not only death. There are so many other human costs that we see in this story. I think about the two women in this story, mother and daughter, both named Herodias stuck in a world where they have very little true power and where Herodias, the mother at least, to achieve her agenda of being safe and feeling protected in her marriage, has to resort to manipulation, where women have to resort perhaps to sexual power to get what they want. I think about the soldiers who are forced to commit a horrifying atrocity just by following orders. They didn't choose this. And I think about Herod himself. Not that we should feel too sorry for him, but there's still a real sadness about his own stuckness, about the way that his pride and his grandiosity constrain him too to do what he would rather not do, to give the orders for the execution of this prophet whose words had touched him at some level, to snuff out the part of his own soul that yearned to listen to John, and just maybe 
to turn to God. And it's a story that is not just one story. It's a story that recurs over and over, all throughout human history, and the details are different. But I think about what happened three years ago with the Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered in Istanbul at the Saudi consulate, probably at the orders of someone high up in Saudi Arabia, where power gives the order and a victim dies. Or I think about the many dissidents and journalists and activists who have crossed paths with the Putin regime in Russia and who have found themselves at the other end of a gunshot or poison or radioactive substances. Sometimes it's the person on top who ends up as the victim, as with the assassination in Haiti that we saw this week. Being on top doesn't make you safe. But more often, it's the person on top who is taking out their own existential dread or their own generational trauma or their own sheer malice on someone else, which might seem like an exercise in freedom to be able to demonstrate your power by making someone else the victim of it. But that's not freedom. It's imprisonment. It's profound imprisonment by the forces of brokenness, cruelty, imprisonment by fear, or in classic Christian language, imprisonment by the power of sin. It doesn't always mean something as spectacular as killing, but it's the same dynamic in situations of abuse, whether abuse of a partner or of a child, or an elder, or a subordinate. From wars and genocides on the large scale to everyday bullying and minor interpersonal cruelties on the small scale. All of us suffer the effects of life in a world where sin is a reality, where violence begets more violence, where those who are abused sometimes turn to abusing others. Sure, to some extent, we do have free will and we are responsible for the choices we make. But we're also sometimes set up to make those choices because we came into a world and a culture and a situation already marked by the choices of those before us and before us and before us. And that is what Christians mean when we say that humanity is in bondage to sin that we can't just choose our way out of it. We are stuck. So John came as a prophet and he did see a different way. He pointed to repentance and to turning to God and he lost his life for it. And Jesus came among us as a prophet, as a successor to John. Herod even thought that he was John come back from the dead. And of course, the same thing as happened to John happened to Jesus. That same dysfunctional, cruel web of chains of human power swept up Jesus as it did John. Because like John, Jesus came preaching a different way, a way of repentance, which means turning towards God, a way of simplicity, a way of mercy. 
which is a way that is threatening, especially to those of us with some measure of wealth or status or security. And it's also a message that is full of hope, especially to those without those things. So John is beheaded, Jesus is crucified, and the two stories so different in their details are so similar in their shape. You might say they rhyme. With both Jesus and John, prophet comes, prophet speaks uncomfortable truths to power. Power is intrigued, yet horrified. Not without some reluctance, power does what power does. And the sordid story goes on. Except. Except with Jesus, we see something new. Power runs into a different power. A power that just doesn't overcome it with more violence, but flips it upside down and does something altogether new. Jesus is raised by God. And that power that God raises Jesus with is not the power of violence. It is not stuck power. It's power that is living and free. It's the power of love. It's the power of life. Herod defeated John the Baptist, at least in the moment. But which of those two has had the greater impact on human history? Pilate defeated Jesus, at least in the moment. But how many followers does Pilate have today? Not that worldly success is the measure anyway. Because of course, the fact is that there have been prophets and martyrs whose names we will never know, who seemed to have no impact on human history because their conquerors did win and the conquerors got to write the history. But they are victors too. Because if regular power is all there is, then those who write the histories really are the winners. But God is real, and God is living, and God is active, and God writes the ultimate history. So if Jesus is alive again, then there is an unpredictable power at loose in the world, and it's on the side of those martyrs and those prophets and those who have been crushed in the gears. A stronger power. Maybe you read when you were younger, or maybe you've read to a child C.S. Lewis's famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you have then, you remember that the cruel and powerful white witch kills the noble lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the book. And the book says that she is entitled to kill him because she has the power of vengeance. She gets to take his life in exchange for the life of a traitor. And she says that this is deep magic that has been entrusted to her since the dawn of time. The deep magic of violence. And that seems to be the end of Aslan, except in the next chapter, Aslan is alive again. And he says that this has happened because of a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. 
The deep magic is answered by the deeper. And we might say, too, that just as Jesus was killed by a deep power from the dawn of history, by that cycle of retribution and violence and pure stuckness that permeates all our relationships, he was raised by a deeper power from before the dawn of history. And that power is at work also in you and in me. It is the life of God. And it is breathing new life into our relationships. This deeper power. It's a kind of power that Martin Luther King referred to as soul power. The force of the spirit rather than physical force. And you know what? In the short term, physical force usually wins. It has more guns and more muscles, more swords and more bombs. And physical force can outdo soul force pretty well in the short term. But the soul force of God, it's destined to win, to win the whole universe in the end. <laughs>